is the Mindset Game Podcast and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian, online training and nutrition coach and owner of James Robert Fitness. Why not check out some of my free content by going over to my website, fitamputee.co.uk forward slash free dash resources. Make sure to share this with your friends on your Instagram story, on Twitter, on Facebook. They can find this episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere that they listen to podcasts by searching for Mindset Game Podcast. Uh, that year. And in 2000, I was fourth place in the Sydney Olympics. And five weeks later, I was fourth at the Hawaii Ironman. In 1990, sorry, in 2008, I won the Ironman 70.3 World Championships in what was a world record time. Without further ado, let's get into today's show. And on today's show, I've got Joanna Zeiger. So welcome on to the show, Joanna. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. So before we delve into today's topic, Joanna, for the individuals listening to this episode and they don't know too much about you, can you give a brief description of what you do and kind of how you've come to uh, write your book, The Champion's Mindset? and kind of how you've kind of progressed to get to that point? Sure thing. Um, I started my athletic career as a swimmer, and I went to the Olympic trials in swimming in 1988 uh, between um, high school and college. I swam all four years of college and had some success in college swimming. Once I graduated from college, I was looking for a, a new challenge, and so I turned to triathlon. And after a few years as an amateur, I turned professional in 1998. In that year, I was um, the amateur of the year. Uh, sorry, I was the um, rookie of the year uh, that year. And in 2000, I was fourth place in the Sydney Olympics. And five weeks later, I was fourth at the Hawaii Ironman. In 1990, sorry, in 2008, I won the Ironman 70.3 World Championships in what was a world record time. So I had quite a long career as a professional triathlete, 12 years. And during that time, I had a lot of uh, ups and downs and uh, had a lot of great success, a lot of disappointment. But I'd say the biggest disappointment of my professional career came in 2009 when I was defending my world championship title. I crashed on the bike during a bad water bottle handoff. And that left me with some very, very bad rib injuries that has caused chronic pain. So that sort of took me out of the sport of triathlon. But I did uh, turn to running and qualified twice for the marathon trials uh, as a master's runner. So that was pretty exciting. During this whole time, because of all the ups and downs and the adversity, I knew that I had to have a strong mind to get through. And I have a great capacity to suffer, which is why I was able to do well in events like Ironman and marathons. And I also have a great capacity to bounce back when things go wrong so that when I have races that didn't go my way and maybe I had to drop out or didn't place well. I was always able to come back from that. And I think the main reason is because beyond everything else, I love sports so much. And that was sort of my guiding principle is it's got to be fun. And so after I retired from uh, sport, I spent a lot more time doing research and decided that I wanted to write a book on mental toughness because I thought that the topic was just so important. And a lot of coaches are maybe not comfortable with talking to their athletes about mental toughness. And athletes themselves often 
have a very narrow definition of mental toughness. They often will think that mental toughness is, well, I got out of bed at four o'clock in the morning in a blizzard and went for a run. And certainly that is mentally tough. But to me, mental toughness is much broader. And so in order to instruct people on, on how to identify mental toughness itself, identify weaknesses within themselves, and then how to correct them, I wrote the book, The Champion Mindset. I followed that up with a study a couple of years later called the Sisu Study. Sisu is the Finnish word for grit. I just love that word so much. And in that study, I was actually able to categorize athletes into different dimensions of mental toughness. Um, and it turned out that athletes are either low, moderate, or high mental toughness. Um, so through this study, I was actually able to develop a quiz and we can put the link on your podcast notes where people can actually take the quiz and they can learn about way, where they have strengths and weaknesses in their mental toughness and that can help guide them in toward making changes. And then to put this all together, I've developed a course with training peaks called the champion mindset, a course on mental toughness. And that just went live this week. So people can take their studies about mental toughness even further and delve more deeply into it, whether it's for themselves or if you're a coach trying to be able to connect with your athletes better on topics of mental toughness. And has, Joanna, has kind of your definition of mental toughness changed throughout your career, be it the highs and lows of your actual athletic career? kind of defined how you look at mental toughness but on the other hand has it kind of shifted through those levels as you mentioned uh, have you been able to redefine and kind of challenge where you perceive you are at in a certain uh, time time frame throughout the athletic career there's no question that my definition of mental toughness has changed over the years in my early days i certainly thought that mental toughness was just, you know, beating your head against a wall, you know, swim as hard as you could till your arms fall off. And then when I switched to triathlon, it was, you know, train as many hours as you can, because that's going to be the answer. But over time, I realized that mental toughness is so much broader. It's, it's the actual ability to take some time off when you need it, not just forge your way through. And it's also about not finishing a race if it's not health, you know, if your health is going to be in jeopardy and it's not just, I have to finish at all costs. And so through my own experience, and I've also been coaching for 15 years. And so through working with other athletes, my definition has definitely broadened. And I think for the better, because what you realize is that number one, because it's so broad, there's a lot of room to make changes and that, that there's also a lot of flexibility in how you approach things and it doesn't have to be, I just have to go as hard as I can all the time. But why do you think some athletes think of it? And I'm generalizing here a little bit. Think of it's best to have quantity over quality. Whereas as you, as you put it, it's putting things into perspective and looking at rest from a performance standpoint that you need it sometimes to be able to get the benefits of your 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 training cycle, whereas it's probably better to look at it on the flip side of that. It's better to have quality over quantity. I think the general problem is just a 
this historical way that we, that we look at training or even look at success in general, that you just have to work really hard all the time. And if you work hard, you're going to get what you want. And there are adages like, you know, pain is just weakness leaving your body. And if you can't suffer, you're not going to get there. And certainly there has to be a certain amount of suffering, but it's not everything. And so I think that there's just this historical component where people have this notion that you just have to go hard and we're becoming smarter now and people are learning more about rest and the importance of plays in a training cycle. And if you feel a little injury coming on, the best thing isn't necessarily just train on through it. So I think the people are becoming smarter as more research comes out and as people learn their bodies better, but still there is a lot of undoing toward this notion of, you know, I just have to keep going until I drop. But is that notion a little bit of a, of a perception towards the mindset? Because we are told probably from an early age that if you put in the hard work, you're going to be recompensed with, with the reward. So it's kind of a catch-22. You're being told this. It's becoming in your subconscious. So you're going to start believing this is true. Whereas I think where people need to probably take a step back and it doesn't matter whatever facet that may be and kind of really reflect on it and say, well, is it the right thing for me at this particular time in the season? Is it a particular right for me? Uh, whatever fast I might be coming back from an, an injury I need to maybe slow down a little bit with my rehab because I might be rushing back too soon and get re-injured so I think it's, so I think would you agree it comes down to definitely that perception of how people perceive things there's no question that 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 cycle that you're talking about is a big component of it that you hear that you have to be tough that you can't give up that you have to keep going and so then we take that maybe to the, the nth extreme. And I think some of it also goes back to what I was saying about mental toughness being a much broader definition than what many people think, that it goes beyond just working hard. And that when you understand that mental toughness is comprised of things like, you know, confidence and uh, positive self-talk and visualization and other things that sort of help you build that mental toughness. And if you look at something like confidence, well, if you keep training and you're tired and then your workouts maybe get a little bit worse and then you're not recovering well, so now your workouts even go much worse and then you think, oh, I'm not in shape, I have to train harder, well, your confidence is going to go in the tank. And so, you know, your confidence is predicated on your workout and then you're tired but you want to work out harder. So you can see how this vicious cycle happens. And so if an athlete can kind of step back from it and say, hey, you know what, my workouts aren't going well. I know that I'm not going to race well if my workouts aren't going well. I know I'm not going to race well if my workouts aren't going well. I know my confidence is going to get lower if my workouts don't go well. Maybe I need to step back, have a few easy days, roll back into it more slowly, and rebuild my confidence. And so once you sort of broaden the net of what it is that's going to help you mentally, I think it makes it easier to make the decisions of when to go hard or when to back off. But then wouldn't that come down to being accountable to yourself and then having, I think, within a team environment, it's probably more easily suited to this than, say, from an individual point of view, you're going to have other people to say, well, 
yeah, you, came, there you, you are struggling a little bit with, with being a certain facet of training in the gym, per se, and you were able to take a step back and say, just from the warm-up repetition, well, this is hard today. I know it's not going to be a good session, so let me take a step back and, and kind of whatever your training load may be on that specific day, okay, maybe take a percentage off it because you, you, you're struggling. You, you, you're, you're either fatigued down to another fact. And numerous factors could be you didn't sleep well that, that night. Uh, you're fatigued just because of the, the volume of training that you've done and be able to take that step back and say, well, I know it's not going to be a good session today. Okay, that's not a bad thing. Let me do it anyway, but to, to get that training volume in, but take a step back and kind of reassert where you're at in terms of, okay, I'm going to lower the weight today. I'm content with that. I know it's, in a sense, it's better to do something than nothing. And I think it, that's probably a kind of a go-between between doing the training session balls out and kind of go, you, you know it's not going to be good, but I'm going to train hard anyway and not doing it at all and kind of getting that rest. So it's a kind of a catch-22. I think you've got to play around with that from time to time. Sometimes it's not worth it to do it anyway because you're kind of going through the motions. That one I would probably steer people to maybe take the rest and come back to it tomorrow uh, and very much that way of going about things. Is that something you would agree with? So, you know, I think this brings a point of why it's important for athletes to have a coach or an advisor or a mentor to discuss these ideas because athletes always question themselves. Am I really too tired today? Do I really need to take this day easier, take this day off? So having somebody that you can discuss this with who can be more objective, that way they can give you guidelines that then you can take forward. But then the other thing is, I have something I like to call the 20-minute rule. And when athletes are starting a workout, they can't make any decisions about how the workout's going to go until they've given themselves 20 minutes of warm-up. Because a lot can happen in 20 minutes. You can spend the first five minutes feeling horrible. The next five minutes, you loosen up. And by the time the 20 minutes is over, your whole attitude about the workout has changed. So I really don't like people taking expectations for workouts into the workout until they've given themselves time to mentally and physically loosen up. And once they get to that 20 minutes, if they're still feeling horrible, and maybe it was an important session with, with some key intervals in it, but they're just not feeling it on that day, and they, they know that they're tired, then they pull the plug. And that's something they could have discussed with, with a coach or an advisor first. If I get to my 20 minutes and I'm feeling terrible, what should I do? You, you either continue the session slowly. Um, if you know that you're really tired and it's just not going to be productive at all, you go home. And so I think it's sort of twofold. It, it's one, that the athlete needs to have the ability to make decisions on their own, but to discuss the parameters of that decision-making with, with a mentor. And I think we go a step further than that, Joanne, in terms of you, you, you mentioned when the athlete is struggling with their confidence, that that's a good proponent with, with the hormonal response because on one hand, when you are training and, put, and putting in the work, you're going to get that hormonal response with, with test, uh, 
testosterone release. And obviously on the flip side of that, if you start worrying about things not going right and you kind of spiral out of control and stop doing things, you're going to get that cortisol release. So that's going to kind of create a kind of a Jekyll and Hyde moment within your body. So if you start questioning why things aren't going well, you're going to, you're going to overdo it things and, and then the body's not able to repair things and you kind of spiral out of control and things are only going to get worse. So the body's not able to utilize the testosterone that you need to be able to recover and rebuild the muscle that's been under tension. So it's, it's kind of a catch trench too. The, the confidence is a good proponent, but then as you mentioned, as it goes down and down, you've also got that hormonal response. You're going to start questioning your inner belief as to actually questioning yourself as an athlete because things aren't going right. Whereas I think, like you said, you either got to have a mentor or a coach or somebody from an outside perspective can kind of put you in check, so to speak, and say, oh, I think maybe if you're less knowledgeable athlete, that's probably a good way of going about it because they can put things into perspective for you to challenge those inner beliefs that you've now created because you've either overdone it or in some cases stepped back completely and stopped doing things that were habits. And that's probably a different one altogether in terms of where you're at. But it's going to, just by reducing that self-esteem and the confidence as how you perceive yourself is going to have detrimental factors, a detrimental effect on you as an athlete or in an entirely different sense. Yes. And you, and you touch on upon something very important and that's self-esteem. And in my study, I found that all of these factors are interrelated things like confidence and self-esteem and determination and self-talk. And, and so when your self-esteem is low, that's going to pull your confidence down. And when your confidence goes down, your self-esteem goes down. And for a lot of athletes, self-esteem is a major component to why they don't have success. They're standing in their own way. And because they're using maybe their sport to give them self-esteem, and then they're getting beat by people they think they should be beating, or they're not performing in exactly the same way that they think they should be. Now their self-esteem starts going down notches. And so I try to tell athletes that they need to find ways to build their self-esteem beyond what's happening in the sport. You know, are you a good person? Are you nice to people? You know, are you, are you dedicated to other things? And, you know, do you have integrity and morals? To me, those are the, the basis of self-esteem. And so if your self-esteem is rock solid by looking at these things, then your performance or how you're relating to other athletes are going to be less important and then that's not going to stand in your way of, of doing well. But in your opinion, Joanna, should athletes kind of shun away from comparing themselves to others like you should do in society? Well, yes and no. It's not a matter of, oh my gosh, I can't believe this person beat me. They're terrible. Or I always beat them in training. You know, that's obviously going to be a very negative factor. But I, don't, I also think that some healthy competition pushes you forward. So that's what it has to be. It has to be healthy competition, not that you're ruminating over comparing yourself 
to other athletes and, and scouring results and, you know, becomes obsessive. So yes, healthy competition, a good thing. Um, something that's becoming self-defining, not a good thing. But if we go a step further with the self-confidence, obviously confidence and self-efficacy is very much related to from a psychological perspective. You need to have, oh gosh, I think if I can get this right. You've got this, like this circle where you have to obviously self-love and, and being very com- comfortable in your own skin and be one paramount. Uh, you talk about having that mentorship role and having people to be able to bounce things off. Um, the team dynamic would be another one. Um, obviously, those are all very much interlinked and, and obviously having that support network, be it friends and family around you to uh, to big you up at times when you're feeling low, they're, they're always going to be, the, obviously, your, your family win or lose they're going to be there for you anyway and love you no matter what the circumstances but why do athletes think that to some degree all those aren't interconnected they kind of think of it as a misnomer so to speak and only one one i don't need to influence one of these facets whereas in essence, if you can kind of get them all working in sync, your your confidence levels are going to be a lot higher. I think one of the primary reasons athletes don't realize that these things are interrelated is because nobody has told them. It, it's while it may seem intuitive to the athlete, they really do seem like distinct things that are in their own bin, and that you know I just have to work on this you know, or this is my weakness right here. But um, athletes, I don't think to have this full understanding of the coordinated effort of all of these things are what are going to help mental toughness. But what, how, how would we go about doing that? Because does it, does it start starting them at a young age or does it take it on educating them, be it, certain facet within education to be able to get them to look at it in any way they would look at education. I think that's probably a good and bad thing because some some people, some athletes hate the classroom. So why would they kind of put a classroom environment into their sport? So how would you kind of go about it? Or is it very much going to come down to an individual perspective and, and very much taking an individual case by case. I I think education is paramount in some capacity. It doesn't necessarily have to be that let's sit these kids down who are in export and have a a class. I mean, I guess maybe a seminar could help, but you know, maybe not a prolonged class, but I think some of it is just identifying mental toughness weaknesses at uh, an age where an athlete is able to understand what these things are And that's why I developed my survey that looks at eight dimensions of mental toughness. And once then you understand, okay, well, I I do well on this. I don't do well on this. I'm low across the board. I need to work on everything. Uh, I'm pretty good. I just need to maintain it. But once you then sort of see it on paper where your weaknesses are, and then you speak to somebody, an expert about it, and then you start to learn about how these things are interrelated and can work together to be beneficial. But one of the things that I see is I work with adolescents 
and their coaches just don't touch mental toughness at all. Either they are unfamiliar with counseling uh, the athletes about it. Maybe there's just too many athletes that they're working with. You know, some of these cross-country teams could have 50 or 60 kids with one coach, and so there's just not the time to dedicate to it. And so the kids are going through their formative years in sport without getting the, the mentorship that they need, and now they take whatever mental toughness weaknesses they have particularly things like self-esteem or confidence or self-belief, if that's not never worked on during adolescence and you're going to take that with you as you move forward. And so I, I definitely think it's something that, that needs to be addressed early on. But wouldn't, in terms of self-confidence um, and self-esteem, be even more paramount to work on at an early age because they're going to have self self-confident issues anyway even if you remo- even before you add the the athletic component to the to person's life because everybody's got some sort of anxiety as a teenager they've got some sort of perception that I'm going to view, be viewed in a certain light in a certain capacity in a in a high school environment oh there's no doubt that everybody should be working on these things but when you're talking about athletes, now we've got a very defined group. They're going off to work with their team. It makes it a little bit easier because you've got this coordinated group that's together at one time and one place. And I think that athletics are a really good way to address these issues and bring them in. It's a, it's a great way to consolidate the topic because you have an end goal. Your end goal is to perform in whatever sport you're doing. And so you're directing it toward that. And so, you know, for me, that's my expertise is working with mental toughness towards sport. And certainly there are other people that just work on improving self-esteem in general or improving confidence in general. But shouldn't you take a step back, Joanna, and, and instead of focusing solely entirely on the result, enjoying the process as well? I, I'm, I'm very much looking to not enjoy the process, but kind of accept it as a journey in itself, as opposed to I'm here at, plan, uh, at, at, at A, I need to achieve and, and kind of get to B. But okay, the, the journey might be longer than that. But obviously looking at the process as a journey to, to, to kind of self, self-discover along the way, as opposed to looking at I need to get from A to B as quickly as possible. No, of course, the process is the most important thing. Well, no, enjoyment is the most important thing, but, but enjoying the process is, is also going to be a guiding principle. But when you talk about the end result, that's your goal. My goal is this, and that anchors the direction of the process. And so I think that you've got to start with something that's very tangible, not just, I want to be better. Because what does that mean? What is better? Does it mean that you're 1% better or 15% better or 50% better? So I like to start off with something very tangible. And it can be incredibly long-term, five years down the road, and then you fill that in with shorter-term goals in between that you want to achieve so that you know you're on track. But there has to be some kind of end result that you're targeting with, with all of these things in between. But knowing the process has to be in place. It has to be... Um, well-built, otherwise that end goal will not be attainable. But I think, I think you're right in terms of you, you've got to have a, an end goal in mind and obviously work backwards. And I think maybe 
oh, it's going to be a generalization and a little bit harsher on, on the current generation of athletes. I think they shoot for the stars t- t- too much at times because they're thinking the likelihood of reaching the professional ranks is very slim. But okay, it's, it's, I'm not going to knock you for wanting to have that because the, the, it's a, like you say, it's an anchor point. If you use it as a tool to get out of the situation you're in from a deprivation point of view, uh, from an economic standpoint to better it for your family situation i'm not gonna i'm not i'm I'm not one to judge that you want to better your social environment for your for your family and kind of create a better life for them that's that's and obviously create a an education uh, perspective that you're able to broaden your horizon from that perspective as well by being able to go to college so so that one i think it's probably redefining the why factor i would say for for the athlete okay you want to maybe go to the nfl uh major leagues um the nba okay that's 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 a good goal to shoot for but maybe you need to define why you want to do that well sure i mean that that goes to you know intrinsic and extrinsic motivation you know are you motivated for the joy of sport and learning skills? Are you in it because you want fame and fortune and, you know, you you want medals and you want to beat your friends? Um, So yes, the underlying reason why people are in sport in the first place will have a a big impact on the kind of success they're going to have and how much enjoyment they will have. But that also, in in terms of how they perceive their motivation is, is a good one because you will have um, a sense of uh, be, uh, coming from a fixed mindset or a growth mindset, the, 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 how I would perceive it from my own experience. Uh, be it when I was a teenager, I very much had a fixed mindset. I was content with beating the people around me of sim- similar ability. I, I had an egotistical view as I was content with beating people around me. But the actual overall um, bettering myself, I didn't really care about. Whereas I think as I progressed through the ranks, I probably discovered that, that sense of a growth mindset. I was content both ways. I think, I think an athlete from some description needs to have a little bit of both. You have to be able to fluctuate between one, one or the other to be successful because at times probably at the very top it doesn't really matter that 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 you are to a certain extent bettering your times because if you're winning what you perceive as being successful winning medals and the accolades that come with it that's fair but obviously on the on the flip side of that you've also got to have an open mind as when if you step out of line and you are quite quite up there in notoriety and being famous, the media are going to come down and you like a ton of bricks when you step out, you do something wrong as well. Uh, right. But I, I will say, you know, I read a lot of interviews in preparation for my book and in, in putting together this course. And I read uh, a lot of quotes from champion athletes. And one of the things that was very much underlying for, for 
almost everybody, was that there's an underlying pure joy in what they're doing. And so, yes, they may be motivated by fame and money and, and other winning championships, but at the, at the very bottom of the heap is that they love it. And when the love goes away, their performances suffer. And then the money and the fame and the championships don't come. And so I think at the very heart of it, people have to love what they're doing and, and do it from within and, and want to better themselves. Because once that goes away, the, the, the performances just start to um, taper off. But Joanna, when it gets to that that point in your career where you, you kind of, be, for another word, lose heart, it, the mental aspect, you're, you're not as driven as you once were, is it better to step away than to carry on then? Because obviously with me, me more specifically, that's what I did. I got, people questioned well, why, why did you want to retire at 27? You're not that old. What, 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 why not carry on to other Paralympics? It's like, well, mentally, I do not feel content with myself to carry on and have regret later down the line as, or if I'd have done this, that, or the other, with training or, or, or whatever facet it may be. I'm regretting the decision I made. I'd rather be content to to walk walk away to some extent on my terms and kind of find my that like like you said that inner belief and to kind of go back to the essence of why I got into sport at a young age in the first place and then go again. It doesn't have to be obviously for me. It wasn't. It's not at the same level that it once was five years ago. But I'm happy again. I, I, I'm doing the sport for the right reasons, like you mentioned. Well, I think it really depends on the athlete. And, and for some athletes, it may be a coaching change. Uh, for other athletes, it might be taking some time off and then coming back to it. You have in the sport triathlon, um, you, know, you have a lot of athletes that are racing the short Olympic distance and they get tired of that. Or maybe they lose their top end speed and they're not as competitive but then they move up in distance. And so there are a lot of ways to kind of break through that feeling of, gee, I'm not having as much fun. Maybe I'm not ready to retire. Let me explore some different options. And for some athletes, they, they do retire and some of them come back. Michael Phelps has done that. Uh, we, we see a lot of athletes just hang it up and they miss it so much they come back, but that, that little refresh they took gave them new, new motivation. So I think it's really up to the individual athlete to kind of navigate when that joy is just gone for good and when it's just sort of on hold and they need to figure out how to bring it back out. And you mentioned, Joanne, that notion of having like a hitting the reset button. Is it because, oh, how would I put this? It is from one point, point of view, it's, it makes up their identity as who they are as, as being an athlete. Okay. It's, for one, one hand, it's probably not good being in totally engrossed in that kind of that mi- mindset. That's it's. I am this athlete, hundred percent of the time, and and nothing kind of goes around with it. Whereas, where I'm coming from with with the, the, this comment now, is is because it makes up the the identity as who they are as the individual. Then they want to kind of reignite that flame and, and kind of get be around the people that's the same like-minded individuals is is that is that why some people 
lock to come out of retirement or does that the motivational factor behind it kind of come down to an individual case-by-case process? I think it's probably a combination of both. One of the biggest issues we see among retired professional athletes is this aimlessness, this loss of identity that you're talking about. And a lot of these athletes just don't want to go back to their sport and they won't go back to their sport. Maybe they've had a career ending injury. Um, maybe they're just uh, a little bit older and uh, they're not recovering as well. Or there's just such a massive performance decline that they, they just cannot play their sport professionally anymore. And so when they are sidelined permanently, that identity crisis is very real and it's very difficult. And, and I think that there needs to be some kind of preparation for that day when retirement comes. I think for the athletes that take time off and come back, I'm sure the reasons are very varied. But at the bottom of it, there must be just this inherent joy in what they're doing because it's just too much work to come back and to put yourself through it. And if you don't love it at its essence, it's just not worth it. But when would be the best time for athletes to actually sit down and actually reflect on the end of their career? When is a good time to do that? Or is that that's going to come down to the another question of looking at you as an individual and it's going to depend on you. Well, I, I don't think it's ever too early to plan for retirement, to think about what are the skills that I have that I can take into the world post-sport. That can be done as soon as you turn professional to start thinking about what your plan is. It doesn't mean that you're, you're not fully committed to what you're doing. You're just planning for your future. I just think that's something that all athletes need to think about, that you do have a shelf life as a professional athlete. And, um, you know, to be able to figure out where you're going next, it's good to have that in place. Or at least to start thinking about it or to have some ideas so that there isn't this such a huge gaping loss. And my penultimate question to you, Jonah, would be, in your opinion, how would somebody go about changing their perception of their mindset in the first place? I think one of the things that athletes need to do is just be nice to themselves, to treat themselves well. If you are not personally nice to yourself, what kind of image are you sending off to other people and how will they treat you? And so if you are really hard on yourself all the time, that you're never satisfied with your performances, or if you have to skip a day because you're not feeling well, you can't berate yourself, or if you've had a tough day training, it doesn't mean that you suck and that you're never going to get to where you want to go. But these are the things that athletes are telling themselves all the time. I'm not good enough. I suck. I don't, I don't look good enough. Um, you know, I don't fit in. I'm not fast enough. I'll never get there. And so if these are the thoughts that you're telling yourself all the time. You're not being nice to yourself and you're reducing the ability for yourself to get the goals that you set out. And so I recommend that athletes start rewriting the scripts that they tell themselves and changing these negative thoughts into more positive ones and, and be your best friend, be nice to yourself. And once you can do that, it's incredibly freeing. And then you're able to shut out the negativity around you. You become more resilient to the ups and downs. And it, it I also think sends off a, a good um, message to the people around you. So that's where I think people should start is just redefine your relationship with yourself. And my following question to that would be, in terms of, in your opinion, how do people strive to become 1% better each day? I think this is very poignant question because the actual 
definition as how people perceive where they're actually at from a percentage perspective is a very good one to look at. Write things down. I, I like to, um, I like athletes to keep a list of what I call daily wins. These are things that you've done that have gone well. It, it could be anything. It could be, I was tired today and I didn't try to push through. That's a daily win. Or it could be after overcoming an injury, you're able to complete your first workout back. That's a daily win. And so this log of daily wins starts to accumulate and that starts building your confidence and starts raising your mental toughness. And my final question to you before we wrap up the episode is if you have to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Learn about your mental toughness because knowledge is power. And when you can see where your strengths and weaknesses are, then you now have the power to make the improvements that you need. So once again, Joanna, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Thank you so much. This is a great conversation. Oh, the pleasure has been all mine. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and do let Joanna and I know what you thought of the episode by tagging me over on Instagram at jamesoroberts11 on Twitter and Facebook. You can tag Joanna on Twitter at Joanna Zeiger and do check out her book, The Champion Mindset, An Athlete's Guide to Mental Toughness. And again, do check out my free content at fitamputee.co.uk forward slash free dash resources make sure to check those links out they will be in the description you can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipsin.com under the category psychology once again thanks for listening and i'll catch you again next time for another episode of the mindset game podcast Oh, my God.